God. We are in 2 Kings 2, but we need to look back to 1 Kings 19. Let me explain just briefly what we're doing, where we're at. I know you might know this. We're walking through this series called Prophets and Kings. We're really, we've been working for a while now. It's been a long time. Well done, you guys, for sticking through it. But through 1 and 2 Samuel, 1 Kings, now we're in 2 Kings. And here's the idea. Um, we believe fully, as Jesus said, the scriptures testify of him that we see these little elements of just the gospel in these the stories of First and Second Samuel, the Kings, the Chronicles. And so we want to see the gospel in the story of the prophets and kings. Now, if you've been with us, in First Kings 11 and chapter 12, there's a major shift. In case you're like me and you kind of like struggled with the Old Testament and where, what happened where and wh- who is this prophet and where did he go, in First Kings, we see specifically you had Saul, He's the first king of Israel. Then David, the real king, kind of the first king. Then you had his son Solomon. Solomon who sinned, so the kingdom's going to split. Solomon's son is Rehoboam. He has a rival named Jeroboam. The names are similar, I know. If you remember, Rehoboam stayed in the south, and he's over the southern kingdom, which is called, the southern kingdom's called Judah. The northern kingdom's called Israel. So you have Jeroboam, who, who went to the north, took 10 tribes. Rehoboam, who's in the south, he was the son of Solomon. And here's the idea. I'm, I'm, the reason why I like to review you, because in case you missed a week or two, the idea for us is th- this is where now First Kings, Second Kings, the Chronicles, they're following different kings, some kings of the north or the kings of the south. Remember this. There was no good kings in the northern kingdom. All of them were evil. Like all of them. Every single king in the north was evil. All right. And yet God was so gracious, so gracious at times to these wicked kings then in the southern kingdom, you kind of have some good kings. You know, sometimes they did good stuff, sometimes they didn't. But you had five primary good kings. Then you had different prophets who went to these kings or kingdoms, who called them out of idolatry, called them out of sin. And so the reason why I want you to know this is I don't want you to get lost. Elijah, we've been looking at him. He's primarily a prophet to the northern kingdom, primarily a prophet during Ahab's time. We saw last week Ahab die in battle. The dogs licked up his blood. We read in 1 Kings 22, like Ahab's dead. 2 Kings 1, we see Ahaziah, his son, ruling and reigning. Now, here's where we are. In 2 Kings 2, this is, to me, this is where it gets really fun. There's some powerful, like, story after story after story in 2 Kings. are some of my favorite Old Testament stories. And now we get to the, the prophet Elisha, right? Everyone say Elisha. We have Elijah, who mentored and raised up Elisha. All right, the names simply means, maybe you remember this, Elijah, Yahweh is my God, Elisha, God is my salvation. God is my salvation. And we're going to see that clearly just um, in Elisha's life in so many ways. Now, here's what's fascinating to me. Um, why we're going back to 1 Kings 19, which is the context. Elisha, Elijah was in the mountain crying, I'm the only prophet left. There's no other prophets. God's like, no, I have some people left. Remember, God speaks to him, not in the whirlwind, not in the fire, not in the earthquake, but in a still small voice, God speaks to him. And God tells him to anoint three people, one of them being Elisha. And he goes, and this guy, Elisha, is going to take your place. Now, I don't know if, you've, if you know the story of Elijah and Elisha. It's good for me even just to see the big picture. Elisha spends about 18 years, at least, uh, with Elijah. It's not like Elisha took over right away. He really does apprentice under Elijah. I mean, they knew each other through and through, 18 years together. And you see that more in the Chronicles, that time span with the kings, but we see that from the Chronicles. They spent 18 years. He's anointed to be the next prophet, but just by his side for 18 years, growing in his faith, learning from Elijah. 
And here's what's powerful to me. Um, we're going to see this, and I love this story for this reason. Elijah today, you might know this, is caught up to heaven in a whirlwind. Like Elijah doesn't die, taken to heaven, and then Elisha receives a powerful portion of the Spirit. Listen, his discipler ascends into heaven, and the disciple is filled with the Spirit. What does that remind you of? Come on, Sunday school answer. Come on, what does that remind you of? Jesus, who ascended into heaven, and then who's filled with power from on high? You know, this story, honestly, as we read it, um, if you just read this story without the, the New Testament framework, it's kind of like, what is going on here? This guy doesn't die. He ascends into heaven, and then his disciple is filled with power from on high. And it's just a precursor, like, yeah, that's going to happen in a greater way between another, between another disciple and disciple, that he's going to ascend into heaven, and his disciples will be filled with power from on high. And it's just a powerful picture of what it means to be a disciple, what it means to be called to walk with God, what it means to be faithful in that call, to be filled with power. So I want to read 1 Kings 19, where Elisha is first called, first anointed, and we'll walk to 2 Kings 2. So we're actually going to read it. You guys ready? You guys ready for this? Come on. I, I'm so excited for this. All right, 1 Kings 19. 1 Kings 19, pick up in verse 19. Elijah just had his hissy fit. God's like, don't worry, we have someone else. Verse 19. So he, Elijah, departed from there and found Elisha, the son of Shaphat, who was plowing with 12 yoke of oxen in front of him. So 24 oxen. And he was with the 12th. Elijah passed by him and cast his cloak on him, upon him. Just quickly throw his cloak on him. And he left the oxen and ran after Elijah and said, let me kiss my father and my mother and then I will follow you. And he, Elijah, said to him, go back again, for what have I done to you? Remember, Elijah was still kind of discouraged. He's like, what have I done? I've just called you to the ministry. This is so tough. He's like kind of acknowledging, this is hard, man. You're about to take a hard role. Verse 21. And he returned from following him and took the yoke of the oxen and sacrificed them. And they boiled their flesh with the yokes of the oxen and gave it to the people and they ate. Then he arose and went after Elijah and assisted him, or literally became his servant. Chapter 2, 2 Kings, chapter 2. Turn there. 2 Kings, chapter 2. Here we go. He's following Elijah, 18 years. Chapter 2, verse 1, 2 Kings 2. Now, when the Lord was about to take Elijah up to heaven by a whirlwind, Elijah and Elisha were on their way from Gilgal. And Elijah said to Elisha, please stay here. For the Lord has sent me as far as Bethel. But Elijah said, as the Lord lives and as you yourself live, I will not leave you. So they went down to Bethel. And the sons of the prophets who were in Bethel came to out to Elisha and said to him, do you not know that today the Lord will take away your master from over you? And he said, yes, I know it. Keep quiet. Verse four, Elijah said to him, Elisha, please stay here now. Stay here in Bethel. For the Lord has sent me to Jericho. But he said, as the Lord lives and as, your so and as you yourself live, I will not leave you. So they came to Jericho. The sons of the prophets who were at Jericho drew near to Elisha and said to him, do you know that today the Lord will take away your master from over you? And he said, yes, I know it. Keep quiet. Verse six. And Elijah said to him, please stay here for the Lord has sent me to the Jordan. But he said, as the Lord lives and as you yourself live, I will not leave you. So the two of them went on. Fifty men of the sons of the prophets also went and stood at some distance from them. 
as, the, as they both were standing by the Jordan. Then Elijah took his cloak and he rolled it up and he struck the water. And the water was parted to the one side and to the other. Sounds familiar. So the two of them could go over on dry ground. Verse 9. Then, or when they had crossed, Elijah said to Elijah, What? Ask what I shall do for you before I am taken from you. And Elisha said, please let there be a double portion of your spirit on me. And he said, you have asked a hard thing, yet if you see me as I am being taken from you, it shall be so for you. But if you do not see me, it shall not be so. Verse 11, and as they went on and talked, behold, chariots of fire and horses of fire, they separated the two of them, and Elijah went up by a whirlwind into heaven. And Elisha saw it, and he cried, my father, my father, the chariots of Israel and its horsemen, and he saw him no more. Then he took hold of his own clothes, Elisha did, and he tore them in two pieces. He rips his clothes apart. And he took up the cloak of Elijah that had fallen from him, and went back and stood on the bank of the Jordan. Then he took the cloak of Elijah that had fallen from him, and he struck the water, saying, Where is the Lord, the God of Elijah? And when he had struck the water, the water parted to the one side and to the other, and Elijah went over. All right, stay with me. We're going to pray in a second. The title today is simply Taking Up the Mantle. Taking Up the Mantle. By the way, that phrase, maybe you heard like picking up the mantle or taking up the mantle. This is what I love about the Bible. That actually, that phrase comes from this story. Like that idiom that we use, like that everyone uses, like take up the mantle or taking up the mantle. That's not just a Christian phrase. That phrase comes from this, this passage right here. I, it's funny to me how so much of the world uses the Bible and they don't even know you, they use the Bible. But the idea of taking up the mantle like Elijah had a powerful ministry, and Elisha will have a powerful ministry, a double portion. In the Hebrew writings called the Midrash, we're actually told that Elijah, and it's true, if you kind of read through it, Elijah performed eight miracles, Elisha performed 16 miracles that are recorded. And you see this double portion. And we see this idea of taking up the mantle from the generation before you. I just want to pray. I want to ask that the Lord would move, because I do believe that this power from on high is still available. But we have to actually believe that and walk in that. So I just want to pray and ask the Lord to kind of just speak and move. Father, we just want to thank you. We're so grateful that, God, you have given us your word. God, that you have not left us just in the dark. Father, I ask that what we read would not just be old stories for meaning then, but, Lord, let it be power for us today. God, I ask that we would not just learn in an intellectual way this story, but Jesus, I ask that we would experience this power that you told is offered to us by your spirit, that you said greater things you will do. Lord, help us, Jesus, to not just know this, but to experience this. God, we thank you that you are with us. We thank you that you too promised to clothe us with power from on high. And so Lord, we need you. And I ask that this would be something that, God, you'd break certain perspectives that maybe we have, certain limitations we put on you, and that, God, you would just speak to us now in your powerful name. Amen. You know, we've all had um, defining moments in our life. I really want you to think through some moments that kind of like, if I went this way, I would have ended up here, but I went that way, and this happened instead. We, we've all had some really, like, important defining moments. And it's interesting when you look back, when I, when I think back on my life, or maybe when you think back on your life, you're like, man, if I didn't like, pick up that phone, or if I didn't go there, 
I never would have met this person. I never would have had that job. It's when I was talking to a few people here, people who ended up getting married here. But it's fun to like, kind of hear those stories of like, Josiah, if I didn't go with you to church plant, I never would have met my spouse and be married. And what the heck, you know, it's, it's almost like hard for them to envision. Like, what would have happened if I didn't take that step of faith? So this is just a plea, by the way, for all you single people. Take some risks in life. Um, but it's crazy when you think about that. When you think about, like, if I didn't do this, then this wouldn't have happened. Like, if I just didn't go, or if I just didn't answer, if I just didn't respond, like, where would I be right now? Like, it would have looked so different. You know, for me, I, I honestly, looking back, there was like a clear moment in my head where I'm like, I know that this is a defining moment. So when I was 17, I graduated high school. My birthday was in the summer. I'm 18 years old. I'm kind of in that place where like, I'm growing in my faith. I'm loving Jesus. I want more of him. And I'm like, I don't know what to do in my life. You know, I thought I was gonna play basketball in college. I'm like, what am I gonna do? So uh, I went and got, and this is so pathetic now looking back, so just be gracious to me. I got a couple certifications in personal training. All right, so whatever. Yeah, don't laugh because I'm out of shape. Stop it. Um, but for anyone who knows that world, I got my like NASM, which is like a harder certification to get. And I was proud of that. Um, it's one of those things where it took a lot of study, a lot of time. I got it. Um, I got hired at 24-hour fitness because I basically lived and grew up there as a child. Um, but that's like where I was working at 18. I'm like, I don't know what I want to do. During that time, I'm teaching some college Bible studies with like my friends on a couple different nights of the week. And I'm just like, I don't know what I'm doing. I just know I want to love Jesus, serve Jesus. And I don't really know what I want to do right now. And uh, I had a, a beautiful experience where I got to get away for a week up in Oregon, seek the Lord, and it was beautiful, and I felt that strong call of God. I remember getting back, and I remember, like, leaving my job at 24 Hour Fitness to go work at a church at a janitor. And that's, like, basically, all, all I knew was, like, I'm going to teach the Bible, and I'll just start being a janitor at this church. But it was in this moment where I'm talking to another trainer. His name is Matt. Awesome guy. Big dude. And uh, he never got his NASM certification. And so I was talking to him. And he's like, man, that's a hard test. I failed that test. Like, I want to get it. And I'm like, do you have the resources? He's like, well, I did the online stuff. But long story short, I had this big, fat, 700-page NASM book. And I'm like, hey, dude, like, every two years, you have to recertify. So you still need that. And in my mind, I remember I'm like, hey, let me just give you this. He's like, no way, dude. You're going to need that in, like, two years. I'm like, I remember in that mindset, like, like, no, like, let me just give this to you. Not saying that it would ever be wrong for me to go back, but I remember in that moment, I'm thinking to myself, as I give him this book, it's like, I'm basically saying right now, like, I'm not going to go back. Now, during church planning, it would have been helpful to have something like that. But again, I wasn't in shape anyways at that point. But in my mind, I was thinking to myself, like, at 18, giving him this book, I'm thinking, like, no, like, this is a way for me to say, I'm giving this to you because I don't even want the option to go back. I'm going to move forward. I know that the Lord's called me to do and it sounds weird because it's just going to be a gender right now, but I just know the Lord's called me to preach this word and love people. And so here's this book. And it's just a symbolic way for me to give this to say, I'm entering into like new territory in my life. What I'm trying to get at is that was a very defining moment for me. That was something where like in my mind, I'm like, I know what I'm doing right now because I don't want to rebuy that book. <laughs> like I was like, I don't want to rebuy it, but I know what I'm doing right now. And this is that moment Elisha's having. Because if you see this, we'll look at this in a second because it's profound. Elijah calls him while he's plowing with the oxen and he burns the yokes and he kills the animals. I mean, there is no going back. And this is a defining moment in his life and his ministry. And here's the thing. We'll look at this more in depth. Um, I do believe that God has called everyone. There are certain passages and scriptures we'll look at that make this really clear that you might be called just to being with him. Everyone's called, I believe, to being with him. But there's something unique when it comes to what we do, like the expression of that. So for Elisha, He's called to be with, but he's also called to be specifically a prophet. And I want to look at this because I really hope you sense, and I, I think everyone needs to have this unique sense as they read scriptures, that God has called you. God has called you, not someone else. Now, 
we'll look at what he's called you to be, to be with him, but he's also called you to do. And I don't know that do part, but I think that part of the Christian faith is going, I know he's called me to be with him, and he's called me to do something uniquely. And not everyone's called to leave their career by any means, which we'll look at. But I want us to see that. I want you to feel the weight of that. I want you to feel the weight where it says Jesus called the disciples unto himself. There's something about the call of God that is very powerful. And that is not just for him or the disciples. That is for you and I today. So you have to see that call. And in that call, you have to see this idea that there will be a testing period. And hopefully you have this empowering period where God just fills you with that power from on high. And so I just want to look at simply as we walk through the text in 1 Kings 19, then jump to 2 Kings 2, because this is a bigger picture of Elijah passing the mantle essentially to Elisha. So here's the three thoughts today. We'll walk through this. Number one is this, the call, the test, the ask. All right, so the call, the test, the ask. Let's look at 1 Kings 19 again, verse 19, the call. Here's what he says in verse 16, actually. I want to back up. When Elijah is having like his pity party, and he's like going, God, I'm the only one left. God's like, no, go anoint three people. And this is what he says in, in 1 Kings 19, verse 16. It'll be up here. It says, Elisha, Elijah, you shall anoint to be prophet in your place. God's like, Elijah, you're going to anoint Elisha. He's, he tells him beforehand, he's going to be the prophet in your place. If you fast forward to verse 19, notice what it says. Elijah passed by him and cast his cloak upon him. I don't know why, but I just love this. Elisha's in the field plowing with the oxen. And then Elijah just goes by and like throws it on. I got him. Like, like, what did you, who is this guy? What did you just do? Why'd you just throw your cloak on me, man? Like, I'm just minding my own business. And then he's all of a sudden, he's like, I got him, God. It's almost like, I don't know, like a cowboy, like, I don't know, throw a lasso, caught him, got him. He's mine. I, I love this because I do think that so often it does feel like this. It's almost like when you're following God or maybe when you're like just doing what you're normally, I, I, this is what I do. I plow in the field. I'm just doing my thing. So often there comes a point in time where you sense or feel this unique call of God on your life that changes everything. It's almost like I was there minding my own business and then God all of a sudden just got hold of me. Like I was doing my thing, minding my own business, and then I felt this unique sense of God saying, no, 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 I'm calling you to something greater. You have to understand this about the call. The call is a powerful thing. Hopefully there's this time where you've been alone with the Lord and the Lord's like, you are mine. There's this verse in 2 Timothy, I love it, just says, the Lord knows who are his. It's a beautiful phrase. The Lord knows who are his. Hopefully there's a sense where God's like, you're mine. I love you. I've called you out of darkness into my marvelous light. There's something so profound about the call of God that we have to embrace. And, and notice this about the call. Jesus even said this about the call to his disciples, which I do believe applies to us. It's John 15, 16. Jesus says, you did not choose me, but I chose you. And appointed you that you should go and bear fruit and that your fruit should abide. Here's the thing. Elisha's just in the field plowing, minding his own business, and the call of God goes to him. He's like, I chose you. I've called you to bear fruit. I want you to be known for your love. The main fruit of the Spirit is love. And I want, I've called you to bear fruit. I've called you to be light in a dark world. You know, there's a powerful verse, we might know it well in Ephesians 2, 8, 9, that you've been saved by grace through faith, not of works, as anyone should boast. But what he says in verse 10, and, and this is a phrase I want us to think about today for everyone in here. In Ephesians 2, 10, he says, for we are God's workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God pre prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. Notice that, which God prepared beforehand. 
You know, we're not saved by good works, but we're saved unto good works. You are God's, you are God's workmanship. You're his poem. You're his masterpiece created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand. The idea is, I do believe God like wrote out a plan as Proverbs describes, and a man gives himself to that plan. Like, God, what is that plan? I want to discover what it is you have for me. Like, I do believe that maybe, maybe there are some people in this room where God's like, I actually have more for you to walk in. Like, I've actually written out your plan from before the foundations of the world. I want you to walk in them. As Paul said in Ephesians 4, walk worthy of the calling to which you are called. Do you hear that? Walk worthy of the calling to which you are called. And part of it is going, what am I called? Like, what am I called to do? And I'll put it simply, hopefully, God calls you to become something, and then secondly, he calls you to do something. God calls you to become something. Just be with him. Be a, be a son or daughter of God. Just he calls you to be something. God calls us, as 1 Peter 2, 9, it says he calls us out of darkness into his marvelous light. Do you hear that? God has called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. Before the foundation of the world, God's like, I have some good works for you to do, and you need to walk in them. Do you get that? This is not just like ministry people. I, gen- I genuinely believe that everyone here has a unique call of God. We've all been called by God to be with him. And then God's like, now specifically, I want you to do something. And I think part of that Christian life is like, okay, Lord, what is that? What are the works you want me to do? What are the good works that you've prepared before the foundations of the world for me to walk in? And I want to say this, when you've heard that or experienced that, that is a powerful thing. Like, did you notice that with Elisha, everything changed from that call of God? Like his life was never the same. I want to actually point this out. It's in verse 20. It says, and he left the oxen, right, and ran after Elijah. He said, let me kiss my father and my mother, and then I'll follow you. In verse 21, it says, and he took the yoke of the oxen and sacrificed them and boiled their flesh with the yoke of the oxen and gave it to the people, and they ate. Okay, a couple profound things here. Um, This is pretty easy to point out. For him to, by the way, kill these animals, they're his animals, okay? He has 24 oxen, 24, 12 that are yoked together, 24 oxen. What does that mean? It means he's rich. It really means that. It means this guy was wealthy. He had a lot. He had a great, he had 24 oxen plowing the field. He's with the 12th. He's with the last of them. I mean, it means he had a lot. For him to kill them, it means it wasn't someone else's. It means it was his. And then there's this dirty cloak. Elijah has been on the run from, you know, uh, Ahab and Jezebel. He's been on the run and this dirty cloak is thrown on him. And I want you to just think about that. It's like, God's like, I've called you out of your circumstances into humility. Like, you're going to give up your wealth, your reputation, your name. Here's a dirty cloak that I'm going to throw on you, right? A smelly, dirty cloak. I just think that's so beautiful. God's like, do you understand what the call of God looks like? It's incredibly humbling. Don't, don't ever get arrogant like, God's called me. Do you know what that means? A dirty cloak's thrown on you. <laughs> it means it's actually incredibly humbling. It means you might have to leave your status. You might have to leave like, but I, I grew up in this kind of way. And God's like, I've called you, though, to not be known for that but to be known for what I have for you. And I just want you to see that this is a, an incredibly humbling call. This is not an arrogant thing. This is like, come on, you ready? You know what I love about Elisha? When you read this, it seems like he's actually happy to do it. Like, he's like, he, Elijah didn't say, now go and kill the, the calves and throw a party for everybody and let everyone eat in your village. Like, that's not told to him. What's profound to me is like, Elisha's going, Let's go. I'm going to say bye to my parents. I'm going to kill all of this. I have no, what does that mean? I can't go back. They're dead. There's no turning back from that point on. They are dead and the village ate them. Like there is no going back. 
That is what the, the, the call of God, I think, does. Here's the thing. Um, sometimes the, the call of God might sound like this ominous thing, like God has called you. I hope there's a sense of, like, yes, Lord, I've been waiting all of my life for something more meaningful. Because here's Elisha, who could be working his whole life in the fields, making a lot of money, doing really well for himself. But you and I know that that might not always be the most fulfilling thing. Maybe there's something more. I, I honestly think Elisha had this, like, here's Elijah who's depressed and sad. Here's Elisha who's excited to serve God. He's like, let's go. I'm going to kill the animals. We're gonna, the, the village is going to eat them. We're going to do this thing. He is all in. There is something I think, like, ho- hopefully, and I know it's not going to happen right away, but hopefully there's a sense where you do sense the call of God, and it's not a burdensome. You know, 1 John 5 talks about that the commandments of God are not burdensome. They're not, they're not a burden. It's like, I get to do this, God. You've called me to this. It says about elders or shepherds, and uh, we've been talking with some people, the idea of, like, you must do this willingly, not by compulsion. Like, serving God is not supposed to be this, oh, gosh. He's just like, let's go. Let's kill the animals. Let's throw a party. And even the idea of, like, throwing this party, like, everyone else ate. It's just this idea of, like, I'm not going to benefit from this. Everyone else is going to benefit from this. Like, everyone else gets to experience the joy of this. I want other people to experience the joy of this. I want to celebrate this. There is something so sweet and beautiful when you see someone serving God from just a pure, joyful heart versus that, like, begrudging, annoyed spirit, like, oh, it's just my duty to do. And you're like, oh, that's not a thing you want to be around. But it's so beautiful when you see someone's like, yes, and celebrate with me. The village is going to eat. We're going to do this together. That is such a beautiful thing. Here's why I'm spending so much time on this. I hope you have sensed the call of God in your life, and I hope you realize that is not a burdensome thing. That is a beautiful thing. It is a beautiful thing. Now, some of you are hearing this, and don't misunderstand me. Don't think that this means, okay, the call of God means I need to go quit my job and go work in ministry. It doesn't necessarily mean that. And some of you would be like, I would love to quit my job right now and do that. Um, we have to be aware of this. I think our generation specifically, we have a weird uh, relationship with the idea of work. I do think there's this idea that we can idolize work, and you can become obsessed and a workaholic, there's no doubt. Or we can demonize it, and every, our generation is like, how do we get passive income? That's the only thing we want. And I, I think there's a side of like, no, work is actually beautiful. Work can be a beautiful, God-glorifying thing. Like, I think we need to hear this. Some of you might truly be called out of your work into vocational full-time ministry, possibly. Or some of you need to now be called and like, radically revisit how you view your work, where that is your ministry. Where God's like, this is beautiful. Because I, it was so weird, by the way. This is like, but remember during 2020 and some jobs were important, some jobs were not important, some were essential and non-essential. And then you're like, I think actually this job is kind of essential. I kind of want that. But it's just funny. Like, you think, you realize in that moment how everyone benefits from other people's work. And you're like, oh my gosh, we're like a network. We need each other. This is beautiful. Work is not, it should not be some like terrible thing and begrudging thing you have to go to. This is a beautiful thing. I love what Martin Luther said about work. He had such a good perspective and wrote a lot about the, the, the idea of working, even though he's a by grace through faith guy. He talked a lot about work, like your job, your work. He says, we should accustom ourselves to think of our position and work as sacred and well-pleasing to God. Not on account of the position and work, but on account of the word and faith from which the obedience and the work flow. What you do in your house is worth as much as if you did it up in heaven for our Lord God. I think a lot of us need to hear that. I worked in a restaurant for like a year. I needed to hear that. (laughs) You know, maybe you work at home with your kids. That is a beautiful thing. And we cannot despise other people's jobs or careers or you despising your own job, your own career. It is a beautiful thing. Maybe God's not calling you out of that work, but God's calling you to view your work differently, that that is your ministry. And the people before you go, make disciples of your job, of your work. 
Be a light in a dark place. I think we need a radical view of work. I love what Tim Keller, he wrote a book called Every Good Endeavor, phenomenal book on how to approach your work. He said, work, and lots of it, is an indispensable component in a meaningful human. It is a supreme gift from God and one of the main things that give our lives purpose. But it must play its proper role, subservient to God. Yes, it's important. Yes, it gives you meaning, but it cannot become the supreme thing. The reason why I'm saying all this is Elisha left it all. Beautiful. Burned the, he literally burned the yokes, killed the animals, fed the village, threw a party. I'm going to serve God. I can't go back. It's all, it's all staying there. Awesome. It might look like that. It also might look like, but my work now is my ministry. And it might look like that. But my, the point is the call of God of being with him, all of us have that. I believe all of us, as Acts 17.30 says, you, uh, he says, God commands all people everywhere to repent. Everyone, in a sense, is invited to that call. Repent, follow Jesus. Now, it might be unique in how we do that. And I just love that it says this. Notice this before I move on. In verse 21, it says, and he assisted Elijah. Literally, it's like he became his slave, essentially. I'm gonna, whatever you say, man. Here's this guy who comes from probably a wealthy family, has a lot of stuff. It's like, hey, where's Elisha? How's he doing? Like, imagine the parents getting together at, like, Thanksgiving. It's like, Elijah's just a servant to this guy named Elijah, you know, burned everything, left it all. It's like, I'm so disappointed. Like, but it wasn't a disappointment to him. It was like a beautiful thing that he got to be able to serve Elijah and to become really the next great prophet of Israel. I love what Adrian Rogers said about this, because I don't want you to miss this. He says, you may be too big for God to use, but you'll never be too small, small for God to use. That is so powerful. He just assisted Elijah. You may be too big for God to use, but you'll never be too small for God to use. There's a sense of this humbling of he's, cl- he's clothed in a dirty cloak, leaves everything, feeds the village, no going back. There is such a humility in his response. I would say this, the call of God is not to puff you up. It's, to, it's in a sense that you might decrease and he might increase. Amen? So the call of God is powerful. It revolutionized everything. Now with this call came 18 years, and here in, in chapter 2, let's go to chapter 2 now. In chapter 2, verse 1, we're going to see this test kind of go on between Elijah and Elisha. So chapter 2, verse 1, you can turn there. Here's what it says, verse 1 and 2. It says, when the Lord was about to take up Elijah into heaven by, by a whirlwind, that Elijah went with Elisha from Gilgal. Then Elijah said to Elisha, stay here, please, for the Lord has sent me on to Bethel. But Elisha said, as the Lord lives and as your soul lives, I will not leave you. Okay, three times, he's like, stay here, I'm going to go. He's like, as the Lord lives, your soul, I'm not going to leave you. No way. A couple different prophet times, the prophets go to him, and I love this. They got like a word from the Lord, like, do you know that your master's going to leave you today? He's like, yes, I know, shut up. I love that, be quiet. I love this like thing that's going on back and forth between him. Do you know that your master's going to leave you today? Yes, I know it's today, okay? Be quiet. I got to focus on him right now. <laughs> and I love that there's like this, in a sense, this test going on back and forth. Um, I want to say this because this is important, I think. Obviously, after you're called, I think there's going to be a lot of tests in life. There's going to be a lot of like, stay focused, persevere, don't give up. Hey, stay here. No, wh- why does Elijah be like, Elisha, stay here? Like, what is that about? There are some really unique stories in the Bible. I have to point this out. That's kind of like, what is this about? It's like Jacob wrestling with God in Genesis 32. In Genesis 32, Jacob's wrestling with the angel of the Lord, who I believe is a Christophany. It's Jesus and, and jo- Jacob essentially wrestling. And he's like, get off me. He's like, no, I'm not going to let you go until you bless me. I'm like, no, no, no. Stop it. Get off me. He's like, no, I'm not letting you go until you bless me. He's like, that's what I want to hear. There's this unique kind of thing where God's like, I just want to see. Are you going to throw in the towel? Like, what's in you? What's going to come out of you in this moment? Do you remember the Syrophoenician woman 
who goes to Jesus. She's a Gentile. She's not a Jew. She goes, Jesus, my daughter, filled with demons. Like, I need your help. Cast out the demon. Jesus is like, no, no, I did not come for you, but only to the house of Israel. That is one of the most confusing verses in the New Testament. You're like, Jesus, whoa. That almost seems like rude, right? Like, he's like, I did not come to you, this poor woman whose daughter's in desperate need, but to the house of Israel. But what happens? And what was the point of that? She goes, but Jesus, even the little dogs eat from the crumbs of the table. He's like, and I have not seen such great faith in all of Israel except in you. You have a greater faith that I've seen than in anyone else I've ever met. The reason why I think this is so important, so profound, and God is drawn up. Imagine this, by the way. If Jesus is like, no, I didn't come for you. I came for the house of Israel. Imagine you're just like, oh, Jesus, I'm so offended. Imagine if you're so offended you missed out on just pressing and like, no, no, it doesn't matter. Jesus, even the dogs eat from the table. Can you, can you, do you hear what she's calling herself? Do you hear the humility? And it's like, was Jesus trying to cheat her? No, Jesus is using this. He knew how she, she would respond, but he's using this as a moment to be like, are you going to persevere? Are you going to throw in the towel? Are you going to be like, God doesn't get me. God doesn't understand. Are you going to be like a Jacob who's wrestling with God and be like, you know what? I'm going to tap out. No, or are you going to be like, no, no, Lord, do this. Bless me. Here's the idea. We need people and Christians who persevere. I really do believe that over and over in the New Testament, we see this idea of like, do we have people who are willing to persevere or are they going to throw in the towel once it gets a little bit tough? Stay here, I'm going to leave. I'm not going to leave you. Stay here, I'm going to leave. I'm not going to leave you. I really do believe that part of the testing in our life is like God's like, again, just we need people who will push in when it gets difficult, not push away. I know it's difficult. I know you want to pull away, but this is the time to push in. Like church, right now, maybe you hear that word that's like, do not quit, don't quit. God's like, I know it's difficult, but blessing is around the corner. Don't quit. You might miss it. What if he just quit after the second time or third time? He's like, yes. What if after 18 years, I'm just done with this? I thought I was anointed to take your place. It's been 18 years. None of that happened. Listen, you don't know what's around the corner, so don't quit. Like, do not quit in that moment. Jesus gave this beautiful analogy in Luke chapter 11, verse 5. We'll put it up here. But in Luke 11, verse 5, Jesus said to them, Luke 11, verse 5, he says, which of you shall have a friend and go to him at midnight and say to him, friend, lend me three loaves for a friend of mine has come to me on this journey and I have nothing to set before him. And he will answer from within and say, do not trouble me. The door is now shut. My children are with me in bed. I cannot rise and give to you. Jesus said, I say to you, though he will not rise and give to him because he is his friend, yet because of his pers persistence, he will rise and give him as many as he needs. That is a really bizarre story. But he's like, you know what? Jesus is like, sometimes just keep asking. The next verse is ask, seek, knock. You have not because you ask not. The point is, Jesus is like, God is, is looking for people who will be persistent, who will persevere. All right, for all my obnoxious, perseverant people out there, hey, what's up? But there's something beautiful about that. It's like we need people who are like, I'm going to push in. I'm going to double down. It's getting a little bit tough, but this is the moment we need to press in. Here's the idea. Many times people quit when great blessings are just around the corner for them. I do think this is very true. Obviously, the idea is it's not like God is trying to weaken you. Or God is some terrible person torturing you, messing with you. God is trying to build character within you to persevere. Paul talks about this in Romans 5, this hope that leads to perseverance. It's like, hey, when it gets very difficult, what comes out of you? You've heard that analogy. If you see a tea bag, you don't know what's in it until you put it in hot water. Once it's put in hot water, everything comes out. And the idea is like, what's in you? When God puts you in hot water, what's going to come out? You know, it's going to be beauty, it's going to be perseverance, it's going to be those characteristics, or this, the opposite of those characteristics. What is it? And he's like, press in, double down. 
Now, I have to point this out because I find this really interesting. He's in Gilgal. They go to Bethel. They go to Jericho. I want you to think about this. Um, if you're Elijah and you know that this is my last few moments with my disciple, who I've been with for 18 years, what do I show him? What do I do with him? What do I tell him? I can't really move on from this thought. I kind of pass on from this too quickly, and I'm like, I, I, can't, I can't do that. There's something very fascinating. In his last few moments, or like really the last day with him, like traveling quite a bit and going to very unique places. It starts off in verse 1 with Gilgal, then Bethel, then Jericho. Why is this significant? I think this is significant for a few reasons, so just bear with me. This might be a little different, but you have to hear this. I think this is so beautiful as what a discipler is doing to his disciple. Um, here's the thoughts. Gilgal, we're going to see that this is like a, a new generation of leaders raised up. Bethel, we're going to see new beginnings. And then Jericho, we're going to see new victories. So let me just kind of start, break this down really quick. No, I'll just honestly read it. So Bethel or Gilgal, first one, Gilgal. Everyone say Gilgal. It's a fun word. Here's the idea. Gilgal was the first place the Israelites camped after they crossed the Jordan River and entered the promised land. It was there that the new generation of Jewish men submitted to circumcision and officially became sons of the covenant. Gilgal was a very significant place. Imagine crossing over the Jordan, which God separated the Jordan, which we're going to see with Elijah and Elisha. God parts the Jordan. He enters into Gilgal, and there's a sense of a renewed covenant with God. New beginnings, new leadership. It's like, hey, God, Maybe Josh was the only one who did it right with Moses and all the different leaders. We're going to do this. We're going to do this right. We're going to enter into this covenant promise with you. The idea is this. Um, I love that he's saying, hey, Elisha, let's go to Gilgal. Like, don't forget our beginning. Don't forget the covenant you have with God. As you're on this faith journey, let's just remember, first of all, what kind of covenant we have with God, that God is faithful. But you must be obedient. You must do what he says. You must move in faith. You must cross over the Jordan, which he does with him. And the first place they go to is Gilgal. And obviously there's significant. Now, by the way, in all three of these places, I'm going to point this out, all three of these places had crazy, wicked idolatry currently happening. So the Gilgal they saw that day was not like the Gilgal then. The Gilgal or Gilgal they saw was a place of insane idolatry where children are being offered up and murdered. And there's a sense of old and new. This is what God did and he can do it again here. This is really important, the kind of walk he's on. Let's just keep going with this thought. Next place they go to is Bethel. You guys might know Bethel, the house of God. Here's the idea. Abraham worshiped in Bethel, and so did Jacob. It was at Bethel that Jacob saw the angels ascending and descending, that ladder or staircase that reached the heaven. There he heard God promise to be with him and care for him. Bethel means house of God. And there Jacob worshiped the Lord and vowed to obey him. Years later, Jacob returned to Bethel, like, and like Abraham, he made a new beginning in his walk with the Lord. It, at Bethel, over and over again, it was like the place of new beginnings. So it's like Gilgal, new leadership, new generation, cross over the Jordan, Bethel, this is where we have new beginnings. A new sense of like, yes, Lord, you can do something new here. And you think about what Elijah's doing with Elisha in his final moments. I mean, Bethel's a very significant place. Father Abraham was there. Jacob was there. Renewed covenant to God there. There's a sense of like, hey, you need to get back to your basics. You need to get back to the beginning. Bethel was also currently, though, a very wicked place. Next place, and I want to point this out. Well, you'll see why I'm doing this. Number three is this, Jericho. We know Jericho. Jericho was the site of Joshua's first victory in the promised land. It was also the place where Achan disobeyed and took the spoils that belonged to the Lord alone, a sin that led to Israel's defeat at Ai. Jericho showed Israel how to conquer the land. Get your orders from the Lord, obey them by faith, no matter how foolish they may seem. Give all the glory to him alone. Joshua had put under a curse anybody who rebuilt Jericho. I don't know if you remember that. There's a curse. Don't rebuild it. But during the reign of King Ahab, 
the city was rebuilt. The guy who rebuilt the city, he lost both of his sons. There was a curse on him. He lost both of his boys. Jericho would remain, uh, remind Elisha of the victory of faith, the tragedy of sin, and the majesty of the Lord who deserves all glory. Jericho is the place where they had that first victory. How sweet is that? Our first victory crossed the promised land, defeat the Jericho walls, come down. But again, that's where they stole. They took the spoils of the land, lied it up, covered it up. Sin was there. God's like, never rebuild the city. Guess what? The city was rebuilt. The guy who rebuilt it lost both of his boys. But the idea of like Jericho, it's so profound. This is where victories happen and sin happen. Do not forget this. The reason why I think this is so significant is sometimes we as Christians, and I want to encourage you, like this is something I have a heart to do with my son at different points in times in his life as he matures, but like I want to take him on different faith walks. Like I want to, I think we should take our Christians and be like, let's go on a walk. This is where God did this. This is what God did. Look at it now. How do we help respond to that? There's this beautiful like faith journey Elijah is taking Elisha on. I'm not sure if you're just catching that. Gilgal, Bethel, Jericho, very significant cities. Again, the reason why this is important is, hey, I want to say that that older generation, raise up the next generation, remind them of what God did, remind them of what God is doing. You know, it's funny, this might sound silly, but even us recently going to see the movies, my my small group, shout out to my small group, we went to see Jesus Revolution, but we're sitting there and and after the movie, we're talking like a little circle and you're like, I didn't know this. I didn't know God did that within that generation. I didn't know this story. I've never even heard of this. I didn't know, you know, the Jesus Revolution was on Time Magazine and God works in a powerful way. My point is, sometimes we need to remind ourselves of the stories. Sometimes we need to take other people on that journey and be like, look what God did. Look what he's doing. I had a pastor friend who took his son over to the UK and all they did was went to different cities where revival broke out in different time periods. And like, this is where the revival, this revival happened and that revival happened. And his whole point was like, basically trying to build his son's faith up and saying, look it, God can do it again. And the, what, what, do you see what Elijah's doing with Elisha? It's so profound. Let's go to Gilgal. Let's go to Jericho. Let's go to Bethel, where God worked in powerful ways. But you also saw in that current moment how all of those places, Jericho was not supposed to be rebuilt. You saw in all those places the current wickedness of the cities. And it's like now God did something. You see the brokenness, God can do it again. And that's a beautiful little faith walk he's going on with him. You, you guys follow me on that. He's like, Elisha, I have to prepare you, man. Don't forget your roots. Don't forget your history. Don't forget how God works. Look at the current moment. It doesn't look great, but God did it then. He can do it again. Yes? God did it then. He can do it again. We have to see it that way. New beginnings, new covenant, new victories. We need the same things again today. One poet said, man is a history-making creature who can neither repeat his past nor leave it behind. We just have an issue sometimes. Maybe we repeat it too often in a bad way. Maybe we don't learn from it. We need to learn from it. Deuteronomy, the book of Deuteronomy, 19 different times, God's like, remember, remember, remember. Hey, take your kid, adults, parents, families, Christians, elder Christians, take Christians with you on a journey and say, look what God did then. He can do it again today. Let's revisit some of those stories. Let's talk about it. Don't forget it. Because God uses that to say, I still want to do it today. There's a testing process happening with him. Hey, stay here. I'm going to go. I'm not going to leave your side. I'm not going to, I'm not going anywhere. Now, here's the, the number three, the pinnacle of the story, the power of the story. Number three is the ask. The ask. If you would, look at verse nine. He says it so well, so simply. Elijah simply looks at him and says, ask, what may I do for you before I am taken away from you? There's a few times in the Bible, God kind of like writes a blank check to a few people. We sat with Solomon. He's like, ask, what do you want? He's like, I want wisdom. Ask, what do you want? I want power. There's a few times you kind of see this dynamic happening. He's like, hey, Elisha, I'm about to be taken from you. You know that. We've heard it over and over again. It's clear. Ask, what do you want? By the way, Elisha was ready, man. He was ready. Like, I, I love right away. He goes, uh, please, let a double portion of your spirit be upon me. 
By the way, be ready for that. You know, be ready for that. I love, if you guys remember Pastor Brian a couple weeks ago said something, I was like, oh, it just stuck with me. He was like, what if God all of a sudden answered all of our prayers here in South Florida? Would we actually see people get saved? And the idea was, are we actually praying for things that matter? If God were to start answering our prayers, would we actually see the, the change we want, the revival we want? I was like, oh, I was sitting in that for a while. The point is like, ask. God's like, ask. Oh, God through Elijah, ask. What shall I do? And Elisha was ready. He's like, please give me a double portion of your spirit. That's what I want. The power you have, I've been with you for 18 years, man. And that also is a testimony to Elijah. It's like, man, I've been with you for 18 years. I love what I see. I want more. I want, I want double that. Now, that, that is so beautiful. And I want to make sure I, I harp on this. This is so important. There is something about asking. I think I complicated um, my relationship to the Holy Spirit for, for so long, and I still think I can do that. But, but here's what I mean by that. Um, we are saved by our faith in Jesus. By grace, you've been saved through faith. So the idea is, um, can I tell you, God's not trying to make it hard for you to go to heaven. He's not trying to trick you. He's not trying to make it really difficult. All who call upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. Hey, can I tell you, there's something about saying, I ask Jesus that you would just come into my life, transform all of me, be Lord of my life. What a beautiful ask be my Lord, be my Savior. Can I tell you, in a very similar way, that's how our relationship with the Holy Spirit works. I used to think that um, maybe holiness was a way to the Spirit. What we see is the Spirit is a way to holiness. And sometimes I complicated things. I still can do this where I think, okay, if I do all of these things the right way, then God will give me the Spirit. Do we understand how salvation works? By grace, your faith. Jesus says in a very similar way, the power that comes from the Holy Spirit, God's not trying to trick you. God's not trying to make it difficult. Ask. There's something really profound about that. He says you have not because you ask not, and you have not because you ask amiss, that you may spend it on yourself. There's an evaluation in the ask. Maybe you want the Holy Spirit, you want power from on high for selfish reasons. Probably you need to evaluate that. Maybe, though, you need to ask and you have not because you ask not. So please actually, just, I know you might know this passage, but I want you to hear it like it's the first time. In that same passage, remember in Luke 11, I just quoted on persistence. The next verse, here's what he says. This is profound, Luke 11:9. 9. This is what Jesus says. Listen to this closely up here. He says, I say to you, what? Everyone say the word. Ask. What did Elijah say? Ask. I say to you, ask, and it will be given to you. Seek, and you will find. Knock, and it will be opened to you. For everyone who, what? asks, receives, and he who seeks finds, and to him who knocks, it will be opened. If a son asks for bread from any uh, father among you, will he give him a stone? Or if he asks for a fish, will he give him a serpent instead of a fish? Or if he asks for an egg, will he offer him a scorpion? If you, then being evil, know how to good, give good gifts to your children, how much more will your heavenly Father give the Holy Spirit to those who ask him? Do we see that? God's like, I'm not trying to complicate this. I really want you to believe I remember at 18 years old, I sat down with the pastor and I was like, what does it mean to be filled with the spirit and really struggle with some of those thoughts? What does it mean for this power from on high? What does that mean? He's like, have you asked? And I'm like, yeah. He's like, have you asked? And what is the text before? Asking repeatedly with persistence. Also in the James mindset of asking not amiss with motives, but he's saying, have you asked? And the idea is this, Josiah, the same way God has given you Jesus by grace through faith is the same way God gives you the Holy Spirit by grace through faith. And I remember it was so profound. I was like, wait, God's not trying to make this difficult. Think about this passage. If a son says, dad, can I have some food? He's like, yeah, son, here's a scorpion. <laughs> like, no. He's like, if you then, being evil, know how to give good gifts to your children, 
Know the heart of your heavenly father. How much does your father want to give you the Holy Spirit? Isn't that crazy? That pa- all that passage had to do with the conclusion of the Holy Spirit. Not just asking for something random, specifically the Holy Spirit. How much more will your heavenly father give you the Holy Spirit to those who ask him? Church, I want to say there's something I think missing because we maybe are not just asking. Maybe we're like, what does this mean? What does this look like? Let's not complicate it. Ask God for the Holy Spirit to indwell in you. God, fill me. Peter, or Paul said in Ephesians 5, be filled with the Spirit by speaking to one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs and making melody in your hearts to the Lord. And it's very beautiful to think that, like, man, you're filled with the Spirit by having this sense of worship. I'm speaking to one another in psalms and him making melt. I'm worshiping God. Be filled with this ongoing. It's like I was filled back in 1985. Like, no, be filled with the Spirit today in this ongoing sense. Like, so maybe you've been filled with the Spirit, but maybe you still need to be filled with the Spirit. Maybe there's more moments. It's, it's literally in the Greek written in Ephesians 5 in this ongoing tense. Be, be being filled is how it's written. Be being filled with the Spirit. Continue to be filled. Don't think it's one time I'm good. It happened then. Here's the point, church. I think a part of us, maybe we're missing out on just amazing things happening because like, one, we're not asking for the Spirit. And we're not asking in that way where it's like, okay, I'm a, I, need, I got it yesterday. I, need, I got him and his power. And if I need it, I need it tomorrow. And by the way, the Spirit is not just a power. It's a person. And so the Spirit is a person that you should pray with and talk to and, and like enjoy. The person can be grieved. You know, he can be, he can be quenched. The idea is like you can't quench uh, the, you, um, an idea. You quench a person. You can't grieve an idea, you grieve a person. He's a person to know and walk with. And I want you to know this, like maybe we as the church are simply just not asking. Jesus made it really clear, God wants to give you the Holy Spirit, so ask. So Elijah says, Elisha, ask, and he's like, Spirit, that's what I want. It's like, okay, okay, that's what you want. And I just love that response, I love how he's ready for that. I, I have to point this out because there's a verse that I like, you know, thought a lot about as a kid, and I'm like, what does this mean and look like? It's John 7, 37. Just stay with me. John 7, Jesus, we'll put the verse up here. It says, on the last day of the feast, the great day, Jesus stood up and cried out. He says, if anyone thirsts, let him come to me and drink. Whoever believes in me, notice this, whoever believes in me, as the scripture has said, out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. Now, this he said about the Spirit whom those who believed in him were to receive. For as yet the spirit had not yet been given because Jesus was not yet glorified. Okay, on the last day of the feast, the Feast of Booths, the Feast of Tabernacles, there's a feast going on. On seven days, the, the, uh, the priests would take um, some sort of pitcher, fill it with water from the pool of Siloam, dump it down the steps. On the eighth day, they'd come up with an empty pitcher and like, we have nothing to pour out. And the idea of that was Jesus on the last day, notice this is on the last day, so the day there's no water. The day, it's like a reminder of people that God provided, but we still need God to provide. On the last day, when that pitcher is empty, he's like, hey, if you believe on me, out of your innermost being will flow rivers of living water. What was he speaking about? It literally gives us commentary. I'm so thankful in the Bible because it's commentary. He's speaking about the spirit and who was not yet given. Why? Because Jesus was not yet glorified. And I love that John's writing back in hindsight saying, oh my gosh, that day when Jesus talked about rivers of living water flowing out of someone, he was talking about the spirit, but we couldn't experience that yet because Jesus did not yet die and rise again, but Jesus did now die and rise again. So now the spirit can be given in this way. He says, those who believe on me, those who believe on me. Here's the thing. I do think this is so profound. I'm not trying to like hype this up. I just want this to be understood. God gives us salvation by grace through faith. God gives us the spirit by grace through faith. Ask, ask. If you feel dry in your life and you're like, I'm just missing out on all that God has for me. I just feel this emptiness, this void. What is going on? 
ask for the Holy Spirit. Ask for God to refresh you. Peter says it this way, repent and times of refreshing will come. God, fill me with your spirit. I need you. I don't want to do life without you. I don't want to try to love my neighbor without you. I don't want to try to go to work without you. I need this power that can come from on high. Because here's the, the part of the story I find fascinating, because I have to point this out. In verse 11, this chariot appears, takes up, well, it's not the chariot, it's a whirlwind that takes them up. This chariot with the horses separated them. So by the way, all those children Bible books where he's like in a chariot, like, yeah, not like that. It says the chariot separated them, look, verse 11, suddenly a chariot of fire appeared with a horse of fire and separated the two of them. And Elijah went up by a whirlwind in heaven, just fun fact. Verse 12, and he, Elisha, took hold of his own clothes and tore them in two pieces. Notice this, he ascends into heaven, Elijah tears apart his clothes. There's something about clothing in the Bible that really kind of speak about you, your identity. There's really unique pictures about this all throughout scriptures. And he's basically tearing apart that, saying, not me. Like, death to me. Like, I need to, this separation that needs to happen. Like, my, this thing I'm clothed in, I don't want to be clothed in this anymore. And what does he do? He takes up this mantle. It says in verse 13, he also took up the mantle of Elijah that had fallen from him. He took up the mantle that had fallen from him. There is this beautiful idea of scriptures like, I need to decrease, he needs to increase. Or listen to this, Paul's like, I have been crucified with Christ. It's no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. In the life that I now live, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. There's so many verses that deal with this idea of I need to die to myself, crucify the flesh, put to death your members. All these verses that talk about like death, like tearing apart. When you think about that idea of like death or your sin, it's like, oh, there's this tearing apart. Like me, my identity, my old longings, my old desires, like, oh, that needs to be torn apart. And then this new mantle is placed on him. Like his cloak, his mantle, his clothing placed on him. Here's why this is so important. Isaiah 61.10 says, for he has clothed me with the garments of salvation. He has covered me with the robe of righteousness. If you're not like seeing this weird idea or this picture that's going on, it's like off with me, off with myself. My clothes are torn apart. I take up Elijah's mantle. And the Bible is like, do you not realize that you've been clothed in the righteousness of God? The garments of salvation for the spirit of heaviness. It says in Luke 24, 49, Jesus said this. He says, behold, I'm sending the promise of my father upon you. What does he say? But stay in the city until you are clothed with power from on high. Notice just the phrase in this. Take up my, he takes up the mantle, the clothing. He's like, wait, stay. Don't leave the, his side. Don't leave his side in a sense. Like in a sense that they gather together in the upper room for those 10 days. Don't leave, stay there. And you'll be clothed with power from on high. This, is, this language obviously takes you back to the story. He tears apart his clothes and a new, cloth, a new cloak, a new mantle is given to him. And he's clothed with power from on high. I just so believe God's like showing through the Old Testament, this is what I'm going to do one day. Death to yourself. Tear apart your flesh. Be clothed with the garments of salvation. I'm going to clothe you with the power from on high, he says specifically. Just the language that's used, God's like, do you not get it? I place this new clothing on you. Your old identity, it's gone. You have a new clothing from power from on high. And this is a beautiful picture of, like, do not see this in Acts. In Acts 1, what's happened? Jesus gathered together, Acts 1-8. He says, you shall receive power when the Holy Spirit comes upon you, and you shall be witnesses of me to Jerusalem, Judea, the ends of the earth. And while he was still speaking, he was taken up to heaven. And then what happens? They're clothed with that power from on high. The point I love is, like, here is the discipler being taken to heaven, and the disciple has power that's given to him. Whether that's here in 2 Kings 2 or in Acts 1. God's like, I'm trying to repeat the story. I want you to see 
that because Jesus died and rose again and ascended into heaven, there is now available for us, as John 7 says, the Holy Spirit who is not yet given because Jesus was not yet glorified. But guess what? Jesus is glorified. So what does that mean? The Holy Spirit is given and he's available. And how do you receive him? Ask, ask, ask in faith, ask persistently, ask. Don't leave the room. Maybe you know the story famously of D.L. Moody who said, I am not, he basically rented a hotel room and he's like, I am not leaving this room until I'm filled with power from on high. The story goes that he stayed in this room, didn't come out or eat or drink for three days and comes out and he's like, I'm filled with power, let's go, let's do ministry. I don't know the details of that. I just love that idea of like, I'm not going anywhere. I'm not doing anything until I have this power that comes from on high. This idea of like, Lord, fill me. I'm gonna see to stay and wait to be clothed with power from on high. I'm gonna stay, I'm gonna wait. I'm not gonna leave your side. Jesus ascended into heaven. Elijah ascended into heaven. His disciple was filled with power from on high and that is still available today. How? Ask. Ask. Your heavenly father longs to give you the Holy Spirit to those who ask him. Are you following me, church? We are saved by grace through faith. Thank you, Jesus, that we freely get to experience salvation because of Jesus. Thank you, God, that by grace through faith, I also get to experience your spirit. That it's not like this holiness leads to the spirit as much as the spirit will lead to holiness. But first, I got to get all these other things in order. No. Stay, wait, be with, enjoy. Ask. I do believe God wants to give you his spirit. Yes and amen. Church, this is one of those things we can read the story and learn some information. Or we can say, God, this story is on repeat and you still want to do this today. It happened then. It happened to disciples. It's still happening today clothe me with power from on high. I can't do marriage, parenting, work, life, anything without this power from on high. Because life is hard, and I've tried it in my flesh, and I'm not good at it. I need a power that comes from on high. Clothe me with your spirit. 